0: Welcome to episode 54 of the Becoming Human Podcast. This week's guest is Ben Michelson. He's a pilot and author. He's won several awards as a writer. His book, Touching Spirit Bear, is influential in the lives of many children, including my own. It's a tricky world out there, aspiring to be a writer with... No blueprints in front of you. Mm. There's no just one job interview and promotion all the way up to CEO, for instance. There's a very unique path for each individual. From pure dedication, he he was rewarded with the opportunity to do the things that he loved more. As someone who's in, aspiring. To fill my time with challenges that I love. So not a deadline or a project for the sake of some product that doesn't have a meaning to me. Or to complete another menial task so that I can survive for the next day. I admire the people who identify the things that they want and find a way to survive and spend the most amount of time doing those things, whether intentionally or on accident. Ben is a very kind guy and it was a lot of fun to get to know him more. If you guys enjoyed the episode, please rate, review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to this. Enjoy.
1: My my past was a bit checkered. I uh, I was born and raised down in Bolivia, South America, and being a, uh, uh, growing up very alone up on what they call the altiplano, the high plains of uh, La Paz, Bolivia, there weren't a lot of other kids, and what few kids there were were... Or oblivion, of course, and so I was very much a white person, you know, white-skinned person in the dark-skinned world, and I was I was always aware, very young, of being different, and uh, and you know, and when I moved to the United States for the very first time, seventh grade, um, gosh, I, I came all of a sudden I was the same colored skin as the rest of the kids, but now everything else about me was different, all the way from the clothes I wore to games I thought were football to Everything about me. Wow. I showed up seventh grade, the first day of school, with Bobby socks and bow ties, and
2: you know,
1: <laughs> my my and uh, and so I became a loner, very much an outsider, and and I think that was a, a hidden gift because then for me, my we, we all love to express ourselves. You do, I do. Everybody has dance or music or poetry or or something. Some people put on football pads and bump into each other, but. All of us love to express our our feelings and and uh, even though I was terrible in school i was i mean when I came in seventh grade, I could barely read a comic book. I had learned that I could put words on a page, and that was safe it was a safety issue and um but I never thought of it as writing I never thought of it because obviously I couldn't spell simple words and and um I got f's and you know and d's in just about every English. Uh, assignment but i still love to express myself on paper and it wasn't until college when a professor took me aside after the first assignment and uh and he said we have two issues you know you have the you have the gr- grammar uh and you know mechanical ability of a fifth grader but he says I stayed up till one thirty this morning correcting three hundred freshman English papers, and he said yours was the only one that made me laugh and cry. He says you're a you're a gifted writer, so he says let's let's work with this. And that was the very first time in my life I had had anybody anybody tell me that I was a gifted writer, and and but that planted a seed. That was planted a seed, and and. Uh, And I would never, you know, I don't think we'd be talking here today if it wasn't for that inspiration. Wow. When were you growing up with your writing, were you self-critical or
3: like were you insecure of your writing or were you just writing and keeping it a secret because you're ostracized?
1: Well, I I think all of the above. I mean, in the sense that I was, I never showed it to anybody because Mm -hmm. I was very embarrassed. I, I never thought of it as having any potential. It was just me a little angry. You know, um, child expressing themselves. Sometimes what I wrote on the paper (laughs) was was not probably publishable. You know. Yeah. But but it was it was just expression. But it it also it also taught me many years later. It it uh, it told me what a writer is. Um, I can remember one time um, I was I was invited as a as an honored guest to uh to for 1000 kids 1000 kids at a at a writers workshop in Chicago and there was all these big big names that were there and we if these kids jumped through all these hoops uh who, you know read 10 books and wrote 3 essays and were selected by their teachers and all this they could come to this the university campus there and uh spend three, you know 3 days a long weekend with with all these you know these free with these, you know, these authors. And, uh, and at the end of the time, the five other authors and myself got together and we, we said, you know, when we were, when we were that age, none of us were qualified. And, and, and it was true, you know, with every one of us, backgrounds and, but we discovered later that that's, you know, when, when you read a good book, you don't shut your eyes and, and, uh, and say, oh, that was the best Hunger Games book I've ever read because every word was spelled correctly. Mm-hmm. You know, you, that's not that's not what makes a good book. And and um, in years later, I can remember going to um, oh gosh, I was uh, juvenile detention center. And all these kids under lockdown. Kian, this eighth grade boy, comes up to me and he wouldn't even have eye contact with me, and he turned halfway away from me when he handed me a paper and he says, "I can't write, but read this." And I don't mean to be melodramatic but in in a nutshell it was called it was called um buckle end and it was he has an alcoholic father who would uh would uh I think the father came home so drunk that he turned the belt around and he used the buckle end and it was the most powerful piece of writing that I think major where slow motion tick-tock, tick-tock. And then what happens? Slow motion in the next 10 seconds and tick-tock, tick-tock for an hour, for a minute and 17 seconds. And, uh, and here's a kid that's coming up to me and says, I can't write. Well, he could write fantastically, (laughs) but he, because it had feelings, it had feelings and it told a story. And, uh, and so I've never forgotten that. I've never forgotten that. I, you know, I often will see young writers with so much potential, but, uh, the, the the school system doesn't recognize that potential wow. because they're still so hung up on the grammar and the and the timing and the you know neatness of your of your handwriting and <laughs> yeah
3: exactly that's you know? what I, I didn't like grammar because that's what I got so caught up on was like sentence structure and stuff and it felt so dry whereas I was interested mm-hmm. you know I guess what you could say is uh, literature folly like yeah yeah um yeah no i
1: i couldn't agree with you more
3: what kind of scenario would you imagine would best support um students' experience with writing
1: well the, one of the things one of the things I do um when I'm working with with students um is i I use the an analogy of magical sunglasses and each it and all it is is what you're focusing on in your story but it, the the analogy of a, a sunglasses helps them, and I'll say each of these ten pairs of sun, sunglasses is magical.
2: <clears throat> one
1: is one is plot, one is uh, you know uh, characterization, one is emotion, one is description, one is cleanup, one is you know I have one fun pair that's Ishiguro creepy, slimy, scary, <laughs> but each one lets you focus on a different part of the story. And I always tell the kids I says. There's not a pair of these sunglasses that is more important than the other pair, so cleanup is important. It's very important. You know, you could you paint a masterpiece, but if you put it down behind the boiler and let it, let uh, let you know mold grow on it, and the rats chew on the corner, and the you know steam destroy it, you you ha- nobody can appreciate it but you put it in a gold gilded frame and you put archival glass on it and you put it in the gallery with soft music. Now you've displayed it right. And I said, so your story's good, but you have to display it. And, and I, I use that analogy. And I think the kids accept that. They accept the fact that, okay, I'm going to have to do cleanup on my story. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but, but I'm also going to get to put in issue gooey creepy, slimy, scary things. <laughs> and, um, uh, and they, you know, and, Once it's in perspective like that, I don't see kids fighting it. Mm -hmm. I think that's indicative of the writing process as a
3: whole because at least from how I write and listening to podcasts, um, interviews, and even books on writing, the uh, problem that I had is, well, how do I get like a thousand words a day? Or just how do I write and not spend all that time thinking of what to write or writer's block? And I realized the technique, and actually made me think of you when you gave the lecture at my school when I was a kid was just writing, and then just as you're saying is you know cleaning it up after the fact because even as adults we get so caught up on like what's the perfect uh, next paragraph for instance that it's hard to even start the momentum in the first place.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you know there's there's I I truly truly do rewrite oh, between 15 and 18 times. And when I say rewrite, I am not talking about going through a chapter and correcting two words on each page. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about going through a chapter and making no less than 30 to 40 uh, corrections and probably a whole paragraph of changes on each page, and that would be considered to be a rewrite. And one thing I tell kids, too, and I think this is important, very important, none of us likes to be criticized. Mm-hmm. None of us likes to ever be told we do something wrong. And I'll I'll pick out um, a, per, a girl that has long hair in the audience. And I'll say you stand up in the back of a pickup and your hair gets all frizzy after 45 minutes. So what do you do? You you, you put a stiff brush at the top of the, your head, push really hard and pull one time really hard, right? I said, you do that, you will end up all like me. But I said, you, you start at the bottom, and you tease your hair. And you maybe 100 strokes later, you work that brush up till it goes all the way through. Now, tell me, are the first 99 strokes of that brush mistakes?
2: Mm-hmm. No, they're
1: not. They're not. They're just the process. It's working out the, the knots. And I said, that's what writing is. I said, get rid of this notion that writers make mistakes. We don't. We're the coolest dudes and dudettes on planet Earth. <laughs> we make no mistakes. We just don't. And I said, but what we do is we do things better, Mm -hmm. and we'll polish a stone a thousand times until it becomes a jewel. But the first 999 strokes are never mistakes, and uh, I think that frees kids up. Mm -hmm. You know, now the teacher, they're given an educational system where they have to grade. Mm -hmm. So how do you grade a kid? You know, when you're telling them you don't make mistakes, but I have to give you a grade, you know, but um, I, I do see it's almost a fleeing thing to a kid um, giving them wings when they realize they're not going to be criticized They're not going to unless unless they don't make the effort.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I said, if you don't make the effort, then I said, I'll sit down. We'll have a talk. But I said, you make the effort. You're not going to get criticism from me. I said, we'll figure out ways to polish your writing and how to how to make it better, you know, and. And more effective, but I said, well, I'm not going to criticize something that you say you did it wrong, because you don't do things wrong.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> that's a liberating thing, I think, to learn or to hear in not just writing, but life as a whole.
2: Is yeah. that we are yeah. not our
3: faults. And yep, and that's a good way to put it. It is, and I'm thinking of, like, sports, because in uh, <clears throat> sports, that's a very common thing, whereas, like, if you can't um, catch a football really well, well, just you're starting to catch a football. Uh, however, in like creative uh, endeavors, I suppose it's not something that that's um, talked about as frequently. Um, but right, um, what were some initial assumptions that you had about um, what it would be like or what it would take to be an author that
1: proved to be false? Well, <clears throat> I
2: remember.
1: I remember. Going down to, I saved, I'd saved and saved and saved my money to go to um, uh, down to California, mm-hmm. to Long Beach, to the writers' conference that they have down there every year. And I camped with a friend in a in a van out in the parking lot because we couldn't afford the dorms, and we cooked, you know, uh, <laughs> our food over a little Coleman stove because we couldn't afford to go into the cafe. Oh, so yeah. we'd saved enough money to go to this writers' workshop. <clears throat> Excuse me. They they had big names. Oh my goodness, they had big names there, all the way from Sue Grafton to uh, Aldous Huxley to uh, Ray Bradbury, and and uh, I remember seeing these people. I go in and hear hear them, and uh, and some of them were uh, were very humble, very very down to earth and humble people. Um, and then there was others that would show up in their limos and they'd get out, you know, half drunk and stumble on the stage, and and I remember all these young writers like myself sitting around and idolizing these established writers. And some of these ones that were go on stage drunk and slur their words and not connect thoughts, these young writers were worshiping them. And, And I thought, I'm not, I'm not. If that's what writing is going to do with my life, I don't want that. I'd rather be stone broke in a little cabin back in the woods with my head together. But not, not like that. And it, at a very young age, I remember thinking before I was ever published what I wanted and what I didn't want from my writing career. And uh, I, what I did want to do was I didn't care about getting published, I, I but I wanted very, very much to write the best I could. And, and one, one um, uh, instructor that... Uh, I couldn't even afford to pay for them to proof a manuscript, which was one of the extras you could add to this writing workshop. He took me aside and he said, Ben, there's there's probably uh fifty other authors here that are better writers than you, but you'll be the first published and I said, Well, thanks. I didn't need to know that, but <laughs> why do you think why do you think I'll be the first published? And he said, Because don't you think I see you in the very front row every Every time, every session, he says, you're in the middle chair. And he said, your back never touches the back of the chair. He says, you've got a hunger. Your eyes are glued on me. And he says, when you ask questions, it's not, how do I get published? It's not, you know, how do I, where do I find an agent or do anything like that? He says, every question you've asked this whole week has been how to make the craft better, how to characterize better, how to, you know, portray emotion, what, what point of view is the most effective for this or that. And he says, it'll be the first published. And, and it was really interesting. This was uh, a ye- almost two years before my first novel, Rescue Josh McGuire, was published. And I had never, ever even been in touch with this with this uh, uh, writer since. Wow. and And uh, when I was published, um, I got a nondescript postcard in the mail. Or not, or it wasn't a postcard. It was a very nice card. But all it said on the inside was, I told you so.
2: Oh no way!
1: And I thought I can I can take I told you so <laughs> like yeah. that all night long, <laughs> take them on the chin.
3: That's so cool. You identified that you had the love for writing, not
1: getting caught up in the making it. And I've seen that in my writers' workshops that I've held my adult writers' workshops over the years. I can almost sit there and watch a writers' workshop and and point out the one person that I would bet my my dollars on. For being the first to be published, and i I've had three or four uh students that i that I identified early in you know when they were still in a writer's workshop and non published and I thought, yeah, that one's going to make it that one's gonna make it nice, and, and I haven't been wrong yet wow what do you see that as? Do you see
3: that as people falling or commonly falling into a trap, or the
1: difference between interest and passion? No, I think I think personally, I think it's like going to the Olympics. You, everybody has to have an ability when like, you go to the Olympics. Yeah, you, know, you, you can't get there without ability and and uh, certain uh, ability in in the discipline, whatever you're competing in. What separates the gold the gold uh, winner from the rest is determination. Is that person. And the rest were up at two o'clock in the morning, running for three hours. That person was up at one thirty, running for four hours. Mm-hmm. You know that, that that determination, that that indomitable, and I've seen that with writers. I've seen, I've met a lot of a lot of excellent writers, but they weren't as determined as myself. I can guarantee you that. You know, after a year and a half of rejections, they quit.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And when I first, when I my first novel was published. Oh my goodness! I I'd been writing full time for five years. I'd written three full length novels, and I'd had uh, I think I counted once it was 127 rejections um, from uh, on those three novels from either agents, editors, or publishers. And uh, and you know when I go to a, a juvenile detention center last year, I asked the students. I said, "What would have happened if I had quit after 122?" Uh, rejections, and they all shouted like they practiced their answer. They said, "You'd be here with us." <laughs> I said, "Yeah, maybe you know." But determination is 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 almighty. But that's true of all of life, not just writing. It's you know, that's why lasers work is because they focus. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and
3: what what um what caused you to have this determination? Have you always had this for writing, or is it a trait that you've had?
1: Um, in many aspects. You don't, that's the one question that I don't know if I'll be able to answer of yours. I, <laughs> I just don't know. I don't know. I've always been a determined young man. I, uh, I I went back to Northfield, Minnesota, where I had ridden my bicycle seven miles out to the airport every three weeks, even in the middle of the winter. Uh, I'd mow lawns, shovel sidewalks, deliver newspapers to come up with uh, twelve dollars. For a 45-minute flying lesson, and and, uh, and I go out, and the same old instructor would give me my 45-minute lesson, and and I had not seen him in 40, 40 I think mean, 44 years, 43 years, and um, I went back, and I stopped at the airport, and I said, "Is Clarence Hines around?" And 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 he uh, and said, "Yeah, he's over that little." That little yellow building, and I went over and knocked on the door and Here's this ninety year old man shows up at the door and and uh, I said, you remember me and He looked at me and he smiled, and he says, You were that young boy that used to ride his bicycle out to the airport here and you know with a forty five minute flying lesson because you only had twelve dollars and I said, Yeah, that was me and he says, Well. Uh, you were a very determined young man (laughs) and uh you know and it was funny he remembered it and then he told me before the i said goodbye that day he says i did give you extra time every now and then he said because i like your determination and i said (laughs) yeah i knew it sometimes you would put an hour in there and i knew we'd flown an hour but you only charged me for 45 minutes and he says that's because you were so determined.
2: <laughs>
1: but I, I don't know what caused that. I don't know what. I really don't know, before, except that I know it's it's a, it's a, it's a vital um, trait. And um, I can
3: relate to that in some sense because in my youth I wasn't all that determined. I'd give up easy and start and stop things, and all of a sudden, like two years ago. Um, It just turned on like a light switch, and I became like super obsessive over, um, you know, a handful of passions like I've never been before. And it was interesting the um, the way that my life changed in terms of how I spent my time because you know I went down those more um, uh, darker roads, making poor decisions and stuff. However, my life changed for the better when somehow I was able to muster up that determination and um, that persistence.
1: Yeah, yeah. In, no, you you you've said it right on the, on the, you know, very poignantly. It's, it's just, why? There's so many people, and there's been so many people in history that, you know, they just needed that focus. I'm Buckminster Fuller that created the geodesic dome.
2: Mm, you know, yeah. he
1: went out to a cliff one night, and he just decided he wasn't going to come back unless there was a reason to come back. Mm-hmm. And he just stood there for a long time, deciding whether to take his life or to, to turn his life around. And when he walked away from that cliff, he with no formal training, he went back and just buried himself in mathematics and stuff. And he was the god, you know, he was the grandfather of the <laughs> geodesic <laughs> dome, you know. But you know, it's it's that focusing with your life, where you just decide, okay, what is it about, and then if, if it's if it's a value, then let's get on with it. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's so cool. And that's it's insane because
3: history is littered with people like that throughout. And it's interesting because growing up, I would hear that with writing or among other creative endeavors, music even, like you're not going to, the likelihood of you making it, the likelihood of you making a living off that is relatively low. And reflecting on that as an adult, I see that if you're in it for money, then the likelihood of success is relatively low. However... If you're in it for something more than that, that determination or that, that indomitable desire to see something through for the sake of it, um, just like you said at the writing workshops, for instance, it's it's very impressive in how that manifests in the individual and the result. Yeah. Um, and what was going through, what was your daily experience, if you could recount it, um, when you were getting rejections for uh, Rescue Josh McGuire,
2: like were, did oh,
1: you have
3: a lot of self doubt?
2: Yeah, I mean you
1: you have to you have to you know because there are times. and mean this is when even when things are going good and you've got an agent and you're in with a the publisher, there's still those times when you're oh my goodness you've had a bad day your transmission went out in the car you're you've gotten in an argument with your wife and. And uh, you didn't sleep very good last night. Now it's 1130 at night and everybody else has gone to bed. You're on your you know, 11th rewrite of a chapter and it's still not coming together. And you're starting to doubt the premise of even the premise of a book that you've been working on for nine months. And, and it's just like, oh, I'm the worst writer in the planet, you know, and I'm being a phony. I'm tricking everybody into thinking I can write and I can't write. And that self-doubt is damnable. It's just horrible, and yet all most writers that I know ha- have it, and um I've just learned the process that that you feel that way you know go give it your best, go back, get a good night's sleep, come back with a fresh uh eye and and dig back in again you know you just you learn to not doubt yourself and and I can remember you know referring to your earlier talk- uh, question about about that smallest percentage to make it into writing. I, I can remember when my first novel, Rescue Josh McGuire, was published. Um, it, I, I went out to New York to meet my publisher, and uh, and they took me into this room, and there was uh, oh, seven feet out from each wall, six feet high, was nothing but pile manuscripts. And he said, that's two weeks of submissions to our publishing house. And he says, every two weeks we get that many manuscripts and we maybe publish two or three new writers a year. That's your competition. And I said, no, no, it's not. He looked at me surprised and I said, no, it's not. I said, if, I, if my intention is to win the Boston Marathon, and I said, I, I go get up and I put my time in for a year and a half. I'm out there at 1 o'clock in the morning pounding the pavement when everybody else is sleeping. I said, if my true intention is to win the, new, the Boston Marathon, I said, when I show up and there's 30,000 other runners, I said they're not my competition. They're not my competition at all. I said there's maybe 10 other runners there that are my competition. People who have wanted it as bad as me, have put in the time and are and are you know getting the getting the the time breaks. You know, I said that they're, they're my competition. The rest is just clutter. And I said, if you really think that I am, this is my competition, then I said, you picked the wrong author. I said, hopefully, and he, he backed off very, very quickly and took a little pushback and, no, 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 you're a very gifted author. You know, But that's the way I truly feel. People would say, well, you, you know, your chances of being published are just one in 2,000. I said, well, nah, <laughs> not really, because there's quite a few that 2,000 are lazy old bums. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know? And... <laughs> they're, not, they're not. I I know in my own heart how determined I am, and I said I I know that It's taken me a lot of places in life. It's taken me to the North Pole, and it's taken me to third in the nation in competition parachuting, and it's taken me to driving a jeep to the tip of South America, and it's taken me you know on a horse across the United States. And I said that determination is is what got me here, not not a throw of the dice. Mm-hmm. Yes.
2: So, wow, that's so cool. And
3: there is something to be said with people's recognition of determination, or even um self confidence, because yeah, I've had um I've done like A and B testing, where mm-hmm. if someone were to ask me, you know, can you design me a website, for instance, and depending on the level of confidence I would have moving forward. I'd either get paid a lot for it, or barely, at all, or they wouldn't hire me. And my skill set never changed. It's just how I carried myself. And I've noticed that, like you know, with people who have their um, slump their shoulders forward and kind of look down, and and, um, look kind of appear socially uninviting, tend to get passed more often. Whether that's in athletics or that's in you know a variety of communities. And I think there's something to be said for uh working on our own selves to be able
1: to um
3: to express confidence I guess.
1: Yep. I agree. Totally agree with you. Well put. Um you know that your ability hasn't changed, you know, but but how you how you um uh, present yourself, you know, and another thing think about this you know, in writing, if you if you're if I if I'm talking to you tonight and I say, "What are well, you up to these days?" and you say, "Well, I'm in my third year of medical school." Oh man, that's cool! You're going to be a doctor, you know? Well, I'm in my third second year of, of uh, law school. Whoa, that's cool! You're going to be a you're going to be a lawyer, you know? And and uh, whether you're a teacher, or you're going to be this or that, or it doesn't matter. You get a certain level of respect in the arts. You don't. Somebody I can remember people coming and and talking to me at a party, and they'd they'd say, "Oh, you're so and so's uh, husband, you know," and and uh, what are you up to? The what are you doing? What do you do for a living? And I said, "Well, I'm a writer." And they say, "Oh, really, really? What do you publish?" And I would say, "Well, I don't have anything published yet, but that's what." I, and they, and all of a sudden, you'd see this look on their face, and they'd roll their eyes like, oh, mm-hmm. why didn't you just say you're unemployed?" <laughs> you know. And and you get zero respect. But now tomorrow morning, when that book is is contracted by Disney, I haven't changed. I'm still the same person. Nothing has changed. But now, because you're published, you know, now all of a sudden you get recognition. I can remember going to my my wife at that time was a um, physician's assistant. And I can remember going to Christmas parties and world-class physicians would come up and oh, we've we've heard you're a published author, you know, and we've always wanted to write a book, and they just Google it, almost like they're groveling at your feet. <laughs> you think, hold it, this is the same person that was two weeks ago, you know? But you don't get much respect. And so what I guess what I'm leading up to is that when you're in the arts, in um, any of the arts, you, you, it's so essential for you to be um, self-reliant. You have to be able to... Depend on yourself and believe in yourself because you do not get the strokes, the outward strokes that most disciplines do. But the sound of it, going it sounds like um,
3: building your life as you want it in the future, but today. And not like, oh, one day when I get published, my life is just going to be better. No, the way you think of yourself and your inner critic is still the same.
1: Yeah.
3: And that interesting point um, in consideration with the people who are obsessed over, like, um, making it, for instance, or getting published by the specific publisher, in reality, your day-to-day life is the same, if not, like, greater greater responsibility or opportunities. But other than that, like, your your level, like, happiness doesn't fluctuate based on external means. It's mainly an internal um, event. It's relevant.
2: Yep.
1: yep. How come it takes cancer or something like that for people to realize that? Why is it that we have to almost have our life threatened before we wake up to that, that, uh, point. And, uh, but you've said it very well. And
3: the, the, the ironic thing is that just as you've put with your dedication and how you approach those writers workshops, you're actually rewarded for just falling in love with the work. And ignoring the um, the fruits of your labor, if you will, because they yeah. see that within you that you're actually dedicated for it. And I can name off a lot, like a painter who just paints for the sake of painting would be more rewarded than someone who is obviously trying to make a money grab.
1: Yeah, it for me as a writer, the probably the the kind of the joy of it all is now as I get I've been in the you know for thirty thirty some years now. Um, published and and I've oh my goodness I've been around the, the circle been around been through the rodeo you know you've gone all the way from lawsuits with publishers and and uh, divorces with agents to you know contractual challenges to oh my goodness the things I've gone through in the publishing business are they're no fun those are no fun but writing plenty of writing, that has always, always been a joy to me, uh, uh, something that I I, I I like doing and love doing. And and having a child come up to me, a middle schooler, and hug a book to their chest and say, this is the best book I've ever read, or a parent coming up and saying, my child hates reading, but they got hooked on your books, and now they can't get enough. And, and thank you for turning my child on to read. Those are the things that keep me going. But now as I get a little older and and I'm not real old. I'm 65 years old, but I, I'm also I just moved out to Anacortes from Montana, from almost 40 years living in Montana, wow. to get away from the snow, but also just for new endorphins. i change of attitude, change of latitude. My wife and I just recently bought a big old boat, and I'm learning what's the bow and what's the stern. But uh, you know, it's it's just a it, it's so wonderful to be out here and. And I'm starting to slow down. My writing is starting to slow down a little bit. And what I'm finding is a joy back, and that I that's been a little bit lacking. And that's the joy of writing. Mm-hmm. Writing isn't a, a, a schedule anymore. It's not a, a contract. It's not a deadline. It's um, it's not all that. It's it's getting. I got away from writing for a couple of years where I almost almost didn't write, and now it's getting back into writing because I. I have something on my mind that's keeping me awake at one thirty in the morning and I have to get it down or it's not or it's gonna keep me awake till three. You know, that is the joy of writing. What's
3: um when you were publishing your books, what was a, a feeling or a thought that made you decide, okay, I'm gonna start I'm gonna publish this
1: book or to make you tackle a new book. You know, I never knew that. I mean I never knew that I never had probably that confidence but, but I I do know that I I knew when I had thought I had a good idea. The trouble is is I I wrote three full-length novels and I thought all of them were good ideas. <laughs> Before the first one was published and, and the other two they still sit unpublished and I in retrospect I look back and say they were deeply flawed mm-hmm. uh, from a commercial standpoint uh, they had a lot of creativity in them but they they're not the type of thing that publishers are are remotely looking for. Mm-hmm. And and I have to admit that. I just have to admit it and move on. And, but um you know that that's the type of thing that uh you know you never mm-hmm. you you put your heart I, I and some of my books that are the most successful the two that are uh PD and Touching Spirit Bear that are on their way to the big screen now those two I didn't I didn't I I put my heart and soul into them, but sort of. I did that with the other books too,
2: mm-hmm. the other eight, you know,
1: I gave every book I've written my heart and soul at the time that I wrote it. I've mm-hmm. never, ever held a thing back. Now, why those two are going to, the, going to the moon while while one or two of the others are, you know, are fighting to stay in print,
2: mm-hmm. uh, I don't know.
1: I just don't know, except that they they struck a nerve, you know, they, I imagine it's like a parent that has six or eight kids, you know? One goes to the Olympics, and one is still living at home and and uh, and you know living off his parents.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a and, uh,
1: and you raised them both the same. They both came from the same lineage and the <laughs> same environment. <laughs> and but, so I I can't explain that part of it. And has that changed um, how you gauge how you feel about your novels after you've written them? no the only thing that I, I i i do maybe a little different than some authors instead of um instead of writing um looking for ideas i don't look for ideas as much as i've discovered that what what brings a story alive is emotions if you can elicit emotions in the reader you you you're already halfway to a successful book and so i i tend to look for emotions really powerful emotions that are elicited in me you know i if I see the release of a short fin pilot whale that that was you know that I helped uh um, you know doing the doing the recovery for a, a month or month and a half, and then I have the powerful feeling that you're releasing something that you love, you'll never see it again that's going back to its home in the atlantic ocean and that that melancholy tears you know that is so powerful and when I go back to write a book on that. I may not know the characters, the I may not know the plot, I may not know anything,
2: mm-hmm. but
1: I know the feeling that I want on the last page, and and ironically, that was the impulse or impetus for a book called Stranded that I wrote, and it was one of the easier novels I wrote because I knew the emotions that I wanted, and uh, there was a lot more to the story than that, but mm-hmm. but uh, I, I tend to look for emotions, and then I wrap stories around those emotions, and that, that for me, works better. Mm-hmm. It's emotionally charged, and you're really uh, passionate about what you're writing.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, if I don't care about it, those readers sure are sure not going to. Ooh, I like that.
3: Do you gauge the success of your book based on its commercial success, or is there a specific um, a characteristic? Like
1: uh... No. <laughs> Go, keep going. Go oh, on. no. I, no, that was it. Sorry. Yeah, no. No, I, I don't. Um, money, however, how well a book does money is what buys groceries. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, and so you can't look past that, but one of my novels, a book called Tree Girl that deals with the genocide in Guatemala, um, back in the early eighties, um, it's my only teenage, you know, a uh, young adult novel. Uh-huh. It's so powerful and it's raw, um. A lot of colleges use it in different uh, programs they have there, but commercially, it, it hasn't caught on. It, it just hasn't caught on. Um, and I'm still so very proud of that book. I'm so proud of it, you know, to have been the author to attend those those feelings and words. I, I'm proud of it, but obviously, the market hasn't discovered <laughs> That's where... I, I get caught up in writing,
3: whereas it's like, okay, am I trying to, so what, what is my goal with, you know, my book? Is it, um, of course, there's many, but would it be, okay, is the best, do I consider it being like a bestseller or purchased by, you know, even just 5,000 people? Do I consider that a success? Or do I consider um, writing it in a way that people can, that just one person can connect with it? And I find that that's yeah. interesting that you talk about Tree Girl and how uh, powerful it was in the way that you delivered it. And I can relate with that because I can identify when I, I have good writing. And that makes a day worthwhile for me.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, you know, one thing I'll throw in here that's a little bit of a segue, but it uh, and uh, uh, may not relate to the immediate conversation, but hmm? one of the things that I've I've come to realize is when I was, coming up the ladder, um, encouragement was so important to me. The few people that took me aside just for five minutes and encouraged me, like that professor, you know, um, there was a pilot that encouraged me. There was a librarian that took me aside and gave me my first book to read as a seventh grader. But that encouragement is so important and I've never forgotten that now when I'm, when I'm in the position I am in now, um, mm-hmm. Just to know that that the right words, if if, I, if I'm respected, <clears throat> the right words can can mean so much. I um, at that Santa Barbara Writers Workshop, they had these bandit sessions where the last of the writers that just couldn't put it to rest, it <laughs> would be that midnight. There'd be 10 of us out there in the bleachers, you know, reading five pages of our latest manuscript and critiquing each other. And I remember I was the last reader of the last night, <laughs> the <laughs> last bandit session, and it was quarter to quarter to one in the morning. Oh, wow. And this old, older man came up to me afterward and he says, young man, he says, you're a very good writer. He says, I think you have a good future. And I said, well, thank you very, very much. That just means a lot to me. And he says, I asked him, I said, do you write much? And he goes, oh, no, no, no. Nope, nope. I just doodle. I says, what do you mean by doodling? Oh, I just do cartoonish things, you know. And I said, well, is it anything that I would recognize? And he says, oh, I don't know if you read doodling or not. He says, I have one that has had a little success called Peanuts. You know, and I was oh. talking to Charles Schultz and, and, and that kept me floating on air for the next year to have had Charles Schultz come up to me at quarter to one in the morning <laughs> at a bandit session and say, young man, you have a future, believe in yourself, you know, and that's, that's good writing. And, uh, so I've, I've, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't hand words out cheaply, mm-hmm. but I also know that when I when I run into some uh, a young person that needs encouragement, I always take the time to to encourage because I know how much it meant to me in my life, not just career. Oh, that's it's like fuel encouragement.
3: Yeah, yeah. What is your favorite yeah. way to spend your
1: time? You know, I have to admit, lately um I moved out to Anacortes um just because I wanted to get into boating I'd gone up to uh, I'd gone up to uh, Juneau mm-hmm. half a dozen times and rented little 32 foot nordic trawlers and taken oh, yeah. me to different places like Glacier Bay and out to Sitka and down around Admiralty Island and Petersburg and and then I the, the owner of the fleet he allowed me to uh help crew uh a delivery of a boat from Anacortes up to uh, to Juneau. And after that trip, it was like, he let me just make all the decisions and unless I was getting ready to stub my toe, he'd let me do it all. And uh, and after that trip, it was like, I can do it. And so for 30 years, I've, uh, I've been coming out, the landlocked boat lover from Bozeman, Montana. I've been coming out to the Seattle Boat Show and learning about boats and dreaming about them and and uh, and finally, finally, that dream has come true so i I'd have to say, answer, long answer to your question. what has been obsessing me now and and keeps me fueled is is totally non writing related except that I know when I get proficient and on my way up to Alaska, I'll get back to writing a story set in this setting, but um although touching spirit bears is already and is set in that setting, but i I um a year from this summer I want my goal is to head up to for the summer to Alaska and, and then I'd like to let my writing catch up to my obsession right now, which is I call it trawler school, but it's every day, every day learning more and more and more about boating and my wife and I just took off and took our trawler the full circle of the San Juan Islands. Um just last week, and and uh, went up to Roach Harbor and and camped overnight there, and went up to Susha, and we just we just been discovering a, a new area of the world that for you guys that live here that's that's old hat, but for us it's landlocked Montanans that lived on a mountaintop with snow. Mm-hmm. This is pretty cool, you know. <laughs> that's. Everybody in the marina is cussing about the seals and the otters and stuff. We're still sitting there and looking at them and seeing how close we can get and ooh and ah. (laughs) (laughs) And
3: I'm sure that adventure will give you quite the material for riding. That's something, a contention I had where I would do these backpacking experiences. um, And at first I thought it would be, you know, it's, distracting because at one time that's all I was doing like I, I quit writing for a while and I got um, very critical like well, what are you doing you're not you know you're not spending any time um, working on this and uh, I thought I was getting distracted but then I realized after those experiences how much it had informed my perspective and I had rich adventure to tell and e- even even though it was uh fictional it still influenced a lot of my story. Right, right.
2: Um
3: those yep. tools are awesome by the way. Did you guys catch the uh Orca whale pod out
1: there? I'm let me say again, I'm sorry, I was I was just uh taking your No you sure we don't run low on current one moment. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Okay. Um, uh, we, we went out to go watch the
3: whales out in, I think, Friday Harbor, and we got to see the seals. Did you guys get a chance to
1: check out the orca whale pod? We have not. I've only, I've only been in this, in this crazy thing, uh, mode for the last two months. And, oh. uh, we went around over by lime, lime, um, kiln, mm-hmm. and they were supposed to be whales there, but we didn't see any yet. I haven't seen any whales. I've seen some dolphins, some, um, The whether the dolphins are not bottlenose, but they're the other dolphins that are here. I've seen some of those come out and come close to the boat, but I haven't seen too much yet. Wow. I haven't seen a dolphin yet, but that sounds exciting. In fact, just only two weeks ago, my wife and I took the boat out for the first time uh, on our own. Uh, We have a 47-foot saline, and we took it out for the very first time on our own. And and, uh, we had two... To, uh, I think they call them doll's porpoise but they anyway they, they came up very close to the boat just 25-30 feet away and we're playing with our bow wave and, and uh, that was to me that was magical that was uh, the marine world saying welcome Montanans <laughs> yes that's so cool and you get that
3: opportunity to explore the marine life whereas Montana was so rich in its own
1: um, what in the forest from what I hear anyway yeah but what, and what's so neat about it, and this is digressing from writing, mm-hmm. but what's so neat about it is is the excitement, the endorphins. Uh, you know, I, I I find myself laying awake at night till midnight, thinking, how what am I going to do tomorrow to make tomorrow's cruise better, and, and what did I do wrong today? How can I dock better? How can I, and I think things through the same way, the same way I did when I was a sixteen year old, getting ready for another flying lesson mm-hmm. and riding my bicycle out to the airport, and it's. That 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 endorphins working for something towards some goal, Mm -hmm. I think that's something we all need. We all need it till the day we die. I'd like to underscore that as a
3: sense of purpose. Yeah. Even even if it's in you know within a discipline like that's something that I've noticed when I was young and uh, angsty, that I didn't have anything day to day that I was working towards and having something to work towards even something like exercise where I couldn't run a mile without running out of breath. And then I run one mile and then five miles and 10 miles. It seems like, you know, nothing from the outside. However, on the inside, it's, it's so much fun. Yeah. It's a yep. Wealthy experience in a lot of ways, because, you know, I'm sure as you know, with writing, the more that you learn, the less, you know, almost because there's just
1: such a vast abyss of information to be learned. Yeah, I think somebody once said it well. They said, you know, if what you know is is inside a marble, what you don't know is represented by the shell of the marble. <laughs> and if what you don't know is if what you know is the size of a basketball. What you're aware of not knowing is the outside of that basketball. And and uh, so when you get very very wise, and what you know is the inside of a uh, you know, a gymnasium, what you're aware of not knowing is the outside of that gymnasium you're, you're <laughs> feeling. And they said there was probably no person on planet earth that felt more dumb than, than uh, Albert Einstein, you know, <laughs> because his, he was aware of what he didn't know so much greater than, you know, somebody who thinks they know it all as, uh, you know, having gone past their eighth grade and, and, uh, brags at the bar, you know? Mm-hmm, yeah. Wow, I've never put it into perspective like
3: that. But it, it's wow, that's cool. Um, and when you were um writing your books, what was your uh, average writing schedule or ritual? What did it look like?
2: You know,
1: this is the one question. Whoops, are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Okay, um, this is the one question that I have. What I would like to tell you, and what is the truth?
2: <laughs> I, I would
1: love to. I would love to tell you. You know that that oh gosh, I'm this disciplined writer, and I get up at four thirty every morning, and I make my cup of hot tea, and I sit down and write. I tend not to be that at all. I I tend to be a binge writer. I'm, I'm a very obsessive writer. When I get into a book, I I had a little writing uh, gear at a cabin up in Montana, and boy, when people saw the lights on out there, you better have the house on fire if you're going to come out and bug me, because I just I I my writing schedule, especially during the rough drafting process, oh gosh, I would sit there and and uh, I, I I might write from. Midnight till four in the morning, sleep till eight, get up and write till noon, then take a uh, sleep till three o'clock in the afternoon, then pull in uh, all the way till two the next morning, and then go and sleep until ten, and then f- write till noon and sleep a little more, and then pull in all nighter, you know. And I just I get in a in a writing binge. Mm-hmm. But what I did was once I got into the story and into the emotions and into the characters, I didn't want to let them loose. I didn't want to go to town, and and, you know, discuss something non-related with the guy at the grocery store or the hardware store. I didn't want to, you know, go and change a tire right now at at, at uh, the tire store and have to decide if I wanted to spend this much or this much on what, you know, what style of tire and things that were non-related to my manuscript. I I wanted to stay head in, and uh, so I tend to be a binge writer. Mm-hmm. Was that an in- now after after my after my book is rough drafted then it's a different story then you know i'm almost i'm i'm very not, uh antisocial during the rough drafting process i'm not even a healthy husband i mean my wife would come out every 5 days and throw in another pair of sweat clothes and say get in the shower and put those on or, or i'm going to divorce you you know and uh and so you know, but once that once that was rough drafted, then the fun starts. I can I can edit in the middle of a traffic jam, you know, with cars beeping. And so then i go on a cruise, or I'll take and my wife will go camping for a couple of weeks. And every morning, I'll from noon I'll get up till maybe noon. I'll edit, and then we go on a long hike this afternoon or something. You know, I can I go up and take a trip somewhere and sit beside a waterfall. And but I would reward myself. Maybe sometimes more than I deserved it, but <laughs> I'd reward myself for for the rough drafting process that was cruel.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> that is
3: a big relief in the way that I always thought it had to be really structured, and I didn't work like that. I would I would binge write, maybe not to that extent. Um, <laughs> however, my son was on um, spring break at his mom's, right? So I would spend mm-hmm. the entirety of spring break just writing that's it. However, if I try to like put it in my day-to-day like 10 minutes or 20 minutes, it's hard for me to get into it cuz I feel like I have to warm up and then to be able to get into the story and if I pull away with, you know, the day-to-day monotony, I tend to lose track of where I am or at least lose the umph of the story. Right? That, was that a very intentional process that you developed for your uh, first drafts, or did it no, happen
2: naturally? No.
1: It's just, that's the way I used to write when before I even thought of myself as a writer. I can remember writing started on poetry. And I can remember uh, as a college, long-haired college kid, you know, that I'd be on my way home for spring break, and I'd be writing a poet poem or something, and I'd be scratching down, sitting on the side of the road, just trying to figure out the next stanza. And, and then somebody would stop and say, hey, buddy, you need a ride? And I'd get so irritated. It's like, don't don't interrupt my poetry, you know? I'd actually crawl over the bank and, or, you know, go down the ditch where they won't pick me up so I could finish this part of my poetry. And then... And then I realized that I'd been there for an hour and a half working on this poem and I better get hitchhiking again or it'll get dark and then nobody will pick me up. I'll be sleeping in that ditch. But that's the type of obsessiveness that I I had even at an early years, you know, before I thought of myself as a writer. Do you recognize
3: that type of obsessiveness in children when you go to schools to speak?
1: I, I don't know if it's obsessive, but I do see it in kids. When a, a kid comes up to me and, and they're just sitting there, happy feet, and they're dancing the whole time. They're talking to me. They're just dancing and on their feet. They're mm-hmm. dancers. You know, they, they can't help it. They, they're, they're just they're moving. Their body's jiving. And the same thing. I'll I'll have a kid come up and be talking to me, and they're sitting at a table and they're sitting, they're doodling. They're circling, and drawing little figures and and. They're just they're 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 they're, they're artists. They're they they can't help it. They're doodling, and and I see the same thing with um, kids with you know that with singing. You know they they uh, oh, oh oh oh. They're just always they're always a, a tune is coming off their their, their tongue. You know because they they love music and singing, and and I find my writing was the same way. I just it was just something I did. I never I never thought of it as a discipline. It was just something like. Uh, you know what? Uh, what you call nervous knee syndrome, you know, or nervous leg syndrome. You just oh yeah. Do it, you know because <laughs> because it's it's there. You know. <laughs> yeah, restless uh, leg syndrome. There. <laughs> but it was years later, of course, when you get serious about it. Now all of a sudden you got to put out. You got to put out or get out, and you got yeah. you have to have this deadline that you meet, and all of a sudden the whole process takes on a a little bit of an ugly mask. Mm-hmm. It's not explicitly playful. No, no, and it's not all fun, and it's not all when I feel like it. And is it does that still make it worth
3: it to you? Because I hear that some people where they you know like to uh, do woodworking or play music, and they're like, oh, when it becomes a job, I don't want to do it. So this is why it's a hobby. However, I feel like that's a not a um, a problem of doing that
1: professionally, but a problem of how you structure it
2: when you're doing it professionally.
1: Yeah, I just I I found the process not. In, in in all honesty, not being fun,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, dealing with publishers and agents and con- and and uh, contracts and deadlines and I mean that just oh that wears on you and and it doesn't take you know more than a couple uh, lawsuits over over contractual rights and stuff and and all of a sudden you're you're. <laughs> I'm saying, this isn't fun. It was fun when I was doodling in the ditch, you know, and not hitchhiking, you know. That That's when it was fun. But you realize that, hey, everybody has things in their work that aren't all, you know, peaches and roses. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not getting black lung disease from working in some Virginia coal mine. And and uh, so don't complain, you know. There's um, relative discomfort in everything that we do. Yeah, yeah, and and anything that's worth doing, it takes a discipline. You know, you show me uh, somebody who's won the Olympics, and and uh, I guarantee they've been through some times that were not fun. Mm-hmm. We're not fun, you know, and and that's just that's just the way
3: things are. Even outside of the discipline itself, it is a fact of life on a day to day basis. Whereas, like cleaning a room, for instance. Is not necessarily fun. I mean, it can be for some, but for most, it isn't. It's seen as a chore. However, if if you're, I believe, if you would to work that muscle, at least from what I've seen in exercise, not not quite in writing, because I'm definitely not as far as you are. But um, with exercise, you do it when you don't want to do it. Eventually, it becomes, at least for me, and others that I have talked to, in exercise, it becomes easier, and therefore doing the dishes or cleaning your room or house becomes easier, doing all the things you don't want to do.
1: Yep. Yep. But, but, you know, when you have a passion for something, it, it, uh, it's, it's the, it's the fire, you know, that's, that's lit.
2: Mm-hmm. It,
1: um I, I can't imagine being in life without a passion. And if it's probably the reason why I moved here from Montana I love Montana. I lived on a mountaintop. we the nearest neighbor a half mile away. We had snowmobiles and we had quads in the summer. and right. and, and But it, it was a dream life that people said, well, why? Why are you moving away from, you know, where most people are moving to for their joy? And, and I said, because I've, I've been down to Yellowstone Park 110 times. I've been on every hike in this area, you know, 37 times. I <laughs> You know, I've been down to... With my airplane, I've flown in the fifty-dollar, hundred-dollar hamburger, you know, thirty-seven times to every one of these airports. You know, you just and and I said it's been it's become too predictable. I said I need something new, and and I couldn't I in this one of the few times when I, I I could not have been more correct because the last few months out here in, in Washington, it's not that Washington is any better than Montana. It's mm-hmm. not. it's, there's, there's things I miss about Montana, but having something new that puts those endorphins in my life, I, I, there's, uh, an excitement right now to life that is just, I'm feeling like a 16 year old again.
3: <laughs> what is your relationship to challenge?
1: Um, it, it, it motivates me. <laughs> it motivates me. You know, I, I, when I was younger, the, the best way to get me to do anything was to tell me I couldn't, but, uh. <laughs> you know that but even now it motivates me i I, uh, I with this trawler i i know there's some days when i'm like oh man am i am i really really ready to you know to cross rosario strait in these kind of you know uh, currents and and uh, and waves and i think uh, yeah, yeah i am i know what my i know what my how i'm going to Behave! If, if anything happens that I've worked through in my mind, and so I'm ready for it, and now good, time to get out and do it, and you know the challenge is there. So I, I still, I still think that motivates me, and 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 then, of course, when you meet the challenge and and uh, you come back in, then it's like, oh man, you just, you just feel like, you know, you like you become 20 pounds lighter, and you, you're floating. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you feel on top of the world in
3: a sense. Yeah. yeah. Is there anything that you've learned from riding or flying that has helped
1: you when learning about boating? Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it it's it's all related in for for flying that the mechanical part of it, uh the systems part, the navigation part. It you know, you're still dealing with with maps and you're dealing communication on the radio and you're, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of systems there that they, they might be different, but you have to have the same mindset to work with them. You know, and that part of it is life is, is the, um, the joy of it. I, I I'm down in the Marina and it's so funny. I see, I see two different set mindsets. One, they're the weekenders that come up and about, oh, maybe once every six weeks and their kids and they're screaming and hollering and shouting and fighting and and starting trying to get their boat going and, and it's been sitting for six weeks, so why didn't it start and how'd the battery go down? And it's just, it's just yeah. an arduous thing for to listen to them. And then there's the others that I like to think I'm one of them now is... Yeah. Uh, life's too short. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a beautiful morning. It doesn't matter what happens. If my boat doesn't start, well, then we'll fix it. And, you know, we just chill out and we all stop and enjoy each other on the, on the docks. And, and it's a whole nother camaraderie that I'm enjoying, but that's the way life is. Life isn't having a boat on the dock and being able to go out. That's not buying our happiness. Mm-hmm that uh, it's just given it the platform to stand on. But if you're not a happy person, you're not going to be any happier with that boat. Mm-hmm. It goes back to to the whole, if you're not going to be a happy person as an aspiring writer, you're
3: probably not going to be a happy person as a successful writer. Yeah. Yep. That's, yep. Uh, someone, I think it was, um, he wrote for uh, Dilbert. I forget what his name was, but he's, uh, um, he does the doodles and the writing. Um, uh-huh. And what he would say is, is, it's You can be more fulfilled, I suppose, having a process mindset instead of a results oriented mindset. In archery, to back it up, uh, there's a thing called the shot panic. So you're trying to shoot uh, specifically with a compound bow so you can hold it back for a long period of time. And if right. you're trying to hit the bullseye, If you uh, all you think about is the bullseye. You obsessively focus on the bullseye. I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. You uh, Something called shot anxiety will take over, and you'll severely miss the shot. Um, a practice to get mm-hmm. over that is to focus on the process of shooting, to not think about aiming. So you were to pull, draw the arrow back, make sure that your shoulder's set in place, take a deep breath, that your bow's level, and your pin, it's... Um, it floats around the target probably within like a quarter of an inch all around. However, if you were to like hold your hand stiff and force it on that bullseye, you're not accurate at all because your muscles are tensing. But if you relax and let it drift and just be in the moment, bullseye. And it's uh, uh, well...
1: That mm-hmm. Go ahead, Ben. Yep. Are you there? Oh yeah, I'm here. Sorry about that. That's something I've never thought of that, um, but that makes so much sense. <laughs> um,
3: well, from all of your visits with uh, children in a variety of scenarios, what do you find is the most effective way to connect with children?
1: Well, you have to be authentic, <laughs> and you have to relate to them at their level, not at your level. You know, and uh, which for me is not very hard. I just never grew up. <laughs> but uh, I and I say this seriously. I uh, I go to a party and I'm much much more comfortable you know on the living room floor with the kids than I am in the kitchen with the adults talking about you know trying, talking stuffy. So I, but I, but the kids have to respect you and and they have to know you care. They they have to know you're authentic. I I correspond with tons of kids and the reason they write to me and. Open their hearts up to me is because they they know I'm authentic. They know, and and I say that in a not a bragging way. They just know I care, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, so yeah, I just think that's important. Mm-hmm.
3: Do you have any um, asks uh, for the
1: audience or anything that you would like to uh, finish the episode off with? No, the the one thing I would, you know, I'd encourage, I guess, at two different levels. One is at a writing level, uh, those of you out there that are that are aspiring, uh, not just writers, but artists, you know, the notion of believing in yourself. Um, you you just can't give up. You can't give up. You never fail until you do give up, if you think about it. And uh, you just, you can't give up. You just believe in yourself. And... You know, things always lead from one thing to the next. You may find that what you want the most may not be what gives you the greatest reward, but if you don't pursue it, you'll never achieve something else. And, and a case in point in my own life was I never thought – I was always terrible at public speaking. And uh, in speech class, I was a little kid that couldn't finish their talk because they got such dry mouth and sweaty palms and all this. And so when I got published, I was invited into schools, and I thought, "Well, this is an honor." But I'm not sure I'm not enjoying it because I'm so nervous. <laughs> but by doing it, I've I travel all over the world, literally all over the world now, um, speaking in all kinds of conferences and different forums, and <clears throat> I just I just I just came back from. Uh, uh canada and, and and you know i was i was speaking to oh gosh close to five or six thousand kids a day wow. for a week and and you know and to talk in, in one week to thirty thousand or twenty five thousand kids and and to feel comfortable doing it and and to feel at the end of every talk that like you just changed the heart of two thousand kids it's it's a it's a it's a it's an, uh almost an addictive um uh feeling that you that you get being, doing that and I would have never if you told me thirty years ago you're gonna you're gonna enjoy probably more than the writing process even just talking to huge auditoriums and gymnasiums full of kids. I'd have said, you are absolutely crazy. But it came with the package and, and I found discovered I enjoy it. Be flexible. You know, follow follow what you, you think you like, work after it. And on the way there, you'll you'll probably discover a couple more things that that turn you on equally, you know. And so I'd encourage people to do that, go go after that. And um, and the, the 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 second thing is is more ambiguous, and that's the, the notion that you know if you're having a bad day, look in the mirror. That's probably the reason, you know. Just, don't don't blame external things. And and the same with writing. It it uh, it's just an extension of life. Mm-hmm. An extension of life, you know if you're a happy person, it'll show through if you're a funny person, it'll show through if you're a dour and negative person, it'll show through. Mm-hmm. but I do know that that negativity uh is a non productive it's mm-hmm. a very very non productive uh emotion mm-hmm. um i i just i I love when kids come up to me and they give me a firm handshake and say, when I grow up, I'm gonna be you know, just just as uh, just as good a writer as you. And I say, I believe you. I believe you're right.
2: You know, <laughs>
1: I hope you're better than me. <laughs> you know, but I, I just love that confidence. I, I and uh, and it is something we can control. It is something it's not something. Well, you were brought up with these things in your past, so that's why you can do it, but we can't because I was had this this this. We always look for excuses, mm-hmm. but when we finally put the excuses aside and say, okay, I'm in charge of my own life. And, uh, I'm, I'm the one that can choose how, how I, how I live. And that that's a very powerful thing because it affects our writing. It affects our writing tremendously, and but it affects our living even more so. And, uh, I just, it's, a, for me, it's an honor to, uh, to get to visit with people like you. And I hope I get a chance to, uh, uh, get together in person. Sometime you're over in Anacortes, give me a call. We'd love to go to lunch and, and, uh, but I, it, more than that, it's just the it, it, opportunity to to visit people like you, to be on the road traveling, to to know that you affect lives. Richard Peck told me once. He said, "If you're lucky in your career, he says you'll have one or two of your novels that become bigger than you."
2: <laughs> and I asked
1: him. I said, "Well, how will I know if that happens?" He smiled. He chuckled. He said, "Well, <laughs> when they become bigger than you, you know." But. But to have you know, uh, Saskatchewan now has has ordered 500 class sets of Touching Spirit Bear for every middle school in their province. You know, Connecticut, if an adult prisoner in the state uh, reads one of uh, touch like Touching Spirit Bear, they get another two hours in the yard. Well, I I could never have dreamed of that that effect on the planet when I was penning this novel 20 years ago in the little log cabin in Montana. But that's that's the way life is, and and uh, I just wish all the encouragement in the world, to uh, your listening audience out there, if whatever your endeavor is, be it writing or be it whatever else, you know, a marathon or whatever you're you're looking at in life, go after it, man. Life's short. <laughs> life
3: is short, and that's one of the fruits of life, man. Is pursuing the things that you love, and at least finding those things. <laughs> yep. But, yeah. Thank you so much, Ben. I really appreciate this. Um, is there anywhere that people can find your
1: work or support you as a writer? Well, just if if you wanna if you wanna follow some of my adventures and stuff, I have a website, just www.benmichelson.com. Uh, com. All
2: right, I'll make and, sure to um, include
1: that in the show notes. You just at the spell Michelson, correct. <laughs> but no, you know that um, and uh and and I extend the invitation to you if you get over to Anna give me a buzz.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I'm only uh,
1: twenty minutes away, so yeah. I'll have to. Isn't that funny? Small world. Yeah, I, but I I've, I've thir- thoroughly enjoyed uh, visiting with you tonight and to your audience, and and uh, thanks for inviting me into your into your homes or you know, venues for this
3: short period of time. Absolutely, and thank you for coming on. Honestly, um, perspectives, life experiences—they're contagious, and for better or for worse, they inspire us to move forward and. Like I said before, you were uh, one of the big inspirations for me, and I've realized that uh, intentionally building a community around me of people who I inspire to be, it's its immensely helpful, and it makes you all the more, not disciplined, but determined. <laughs> Thank you, Ben.
1: I've appreciated your
0: insight. Thank you. Thank you guys for listening to this episode with Ben. Man, that guy's awesome. <laughs> Woo! Next week we got an exciting episode in store. Talking about morality and ethics with Daniel McHugh. I'm stoked for it. It'll be good practice for me. And I get to understand his thinking a little bit more. Head over to the Ben's website. You can find it in the show notes. Go pick up one of his books. Touching Spirit Bear was my favorite Buy it. I think I'm going to read it to my son.
2: I'm stoked for it. Haha. <laughs> Till next time. Blah.